This is Bedard on Discipleship with Stephen Bedard. Stephen Bedard here, and I'm really excited about this video. We have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Dwayne Miller, and I've had the opportunity to talk to him before for my History of Christianity podcast, and I'll leave a link to that in the notes. But we're going to be looking at something that's sort of related to what we looked at there, but uh, a little bit different as well. But first of all, uh, Dwayne, if you could just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you're currently doing. Yeah, my name is Dwayne Alexander Miller, originally from the United States, um, from uh, Helena, Montana is where I was born, so uh, probably a nice snowy area, not as snowy as Madrid, and I understand you don't have very much snow right where you are right now, Stephen, is that right? That's right. Even in Canada here, at least where I am, uh, not much snow. Great. So anyway, I'm um, the associate uh, pastor or uh, a priest at the Anglican Cathedral in Madrid. We've been here for three years. I live here with my uh, wife and our three kids. You can see a bunch of the artwork of my my youngest one. She just draws stuff and sticks it on the wall. So, you know, I'm not going to take it down. And uh, I'm also associate professor at one of the Protestant seminaries here in Spain. There's only five accredited seminaries here, Protestant seminaries, and I teach Old Testament at one of those. And also, um, I am the founding uh, co-pastor of Canisa. Canisa is an Arabic language fellowship uh, that is seeking to minister in Arabic uh, to people here in Madrid. And my wife, Sharon, she's the worship leader um, over there and, and at the Anglican Cathedral, too. So. Excellent. Oh, you got a lot of stuff going on and a pretty rich background, which uh, I'm assuming uh, feeds well into the uh, book that you just recently written. And so that book is called I Will Give Them an Everlasting Name, Pastoral Care for Christ Converts from Islam. And uh, a previous book, too, uh, had to do with uh, Islam. And that's the one that we talked about in that podcast episode. So what what got you interested in Islam and uh, Christian converts? Yeah, the thing that got me interested in really studying and researching this um, was when we were living in Jordan uh, back in the mid-2000s. And my wife and I, we were studying Arabic, and I got to know one or two believers who had come from Islam to Christianity. And I thought, well, you know, I've got a, I've got a master's degree in theology. I know how to research stuff. So I started doing a lot of research and I found out that there was a whole bunch of material um, from, from missionaries and ministers kind of trying to say what they thought that converts should be like, you know, they, they should wear the hijab. They should not, they should fast during Ramadan. They should not. And I, and I thought, well, why don't I actually go and meet these people and talk with them and learn about their own, their own opinions on these issues? So that, that's what took me over to Edinburgh to do the, a PhD in divinity with a focus on in world Christianity. And so that really was the, the opening of, of really focusing on researching and trying to understand uh, the issues uh, surrounding the lives of, of these converts from, from Islam to, uh, to the Christian faith. Yeah, that really uh, rings true to many of the things that uh, I've heard. My wife uh, had the opportunity to spend a, a little bit of time in uh, Lebanon at the uh, Baptist, uh, the Arab Baptist Theological uh, Seminary there, and they were having a uh, a conference on that. And she had the the chance to hear from 
uh, a number of uh, uh, converts from Islam, and many of them had completely different perspectives and views, and there were those who uh, sort of modified their Islam somewhat, and then those who wanted to do something absolutely, uh, completely different, and a whole bunch of people in the middle. And so it was a very complex uh, situation to uh, to hear that, and it really had an impact on her. Now, uh, your your book um, refers to uh, converts from Islam. Uh, in your experience and, and from your research, uh, what is the means by which uh, many of the uh, many Muslims are converting to Christianity? Yeah, so we have a good amount of research done on the topic. You know, when we just go to different believers and say, why did you make this decision? You know, many of them really understand that they're they're going to be separated from their family. They might lose their job. They might eventually be kicked out of their country. I mean, these things are real. They don't always happen, but they, they really do happen. And sometimes even worse things, getting thrown in jail, getting locked up by your family. Um, so, you know, they're definitely taking a risk when they are making this decision. Um, I would summarize uh, just a couple of points. One of them is uh, the person of Jesus Christ. He's just a very attractive person. This is something that you and I as pastors were so used to, you know, studying and preaching from the Gospels. That I think sometimes the magnetism of just the personality of Jesus Christ is lost on us. Uh, T.S. Eliot, the great Anglo-Catholic poet, said something like, um, you know, God, he, is, he is hard when we would be soft, and he is soft when we would be hard. You know, with the big, important people, he's, you know, calling a spade a spade. And then with these other people who are not really appreciated by society, he's like, you know, I, I need to be with these people. Um, it's just very attractive, and it's quite a different personality um, than that of uh, Muhammad, the, the founding figure of, of Islam. So that's one thing. Another one is a sure salvation. Um, I don't want to get into the theological question of once saved, always saved. But the idea is that in Christianity, we have a clear idea that, that we are not the ones who work out our own salvation. Um, well, we work it out in terms of the consequences of it, but we do not obtain it. We do not earn it. We do not go and, and uh, you know, do deeds so we can have the merits so that God will give us uh, this salvation. It is a gift. And in Islam, you know, Allah, he, he forgives, but, and he is merciful and compassionate, but you never know if he's going to forgive you. So, so this is a, this is a little bit difficult situation. Um, so, you know, just this promise, the theological term is vicarious atonement, right? But this, this promise that if you put your faith that you're in Christ, that your sins are forgiven, this is it's an amazing and very attractive thing for, for a good number of Muslims. A third factor that we see a lot is uh, dreams and visions. Um, these are very common. They're not universal, but they're quite common. Um, and, and what's so interesting about these dreams and visions is they, they change a lot from person to person. Like I've not heard any two people that have exactly the same dream or vision. Otherwise you would think, well, you probably heard that. And so subconsciously, no, they're all very different. Um, but I want to say that the dream or the vision or like a miraculous answer to prayer for healing or something like that, uh, these, these, this whole transcendental family of, of things, uh, that that's never the whole story. That's always one step in a much larger journey. So sooner or later, you've got to have the blood and flesh Christian who's going to be there um, to to and you need to have the body of Christ to be there, which is something I talk about in the book, the importance of the body, the community that I think we miss out on a lot. 
And the, the final thing is just that a lot of Muslims are very disappointed with Islam. Uh, I know in, in the West, um, here in Spain and, you know, different parts of the Muslim world, you have a lot of Muslims who just are now just saying what a lot of Christians are saying in Canada and the United States or former Christians. I don't really have a religion. What religion are you? Do you believe in God? Yeah, I think so. What religion are you? I don't, you know, they don't want to identify themselves as Muslims anymore. That has to do with all sorts of things relating to women's right, the rights of non-Muslims in a Muslim society, which are inferior rights, if they have any at all. Uh, it has to do with kind of the, what, what they perceive to be the nepotism and the corruption and the economic and political systems. And all this kind of makes a lot of people born into a Muslim family say, this doesn't seem to be working. So let me try to find some, something else. Some of them just go to no religion. Others, uh, the other main destination would be Christianity. So those would be like the main four points that, that we get when, uh, when, pe- when we ask them, uh, you know, why, why did you convert? When I first heard about uh, the dreams and visions, I have to admit, I- I'm a skeptic at heart. In, in general, I'm-, I'm very skeptical about everything. And uh, so that was difficult for me. But then I, I did meet someone and-, and got to know and, and called his friend uh, a person who converted uh, from Islam to Christianity through, uh, through a dream. And it was a uh, pretty convincing for her because there was a major cost and she, her family uh, cut her off for about uh, three years after that. And thankfully they were able to, to reconcile and, and uh, they were able to, uh, to have a relationship again, but uh, she was sure enough that that dream was true, that she was willing to, to pay that price. So that was, that was something that was quite convincing to her. Yeah. That's amazing. So uh, a Muslim converts to Christ. What is the number one need for that person? They, they've uh, perhaps they've uh, uh, admitted their, uh, their faith in Jesus. Uh, they've been baptized. What now? What, what is it that they need? Uh, the main answer that I've come up with, and, and again, this is from 15 years of, of spending time in the Middle East, a lot of it just living in the Middle East and in the Muslim world, and of, of research, both pastoral and academic. So this, this is not just one guy kind of sharing anecdotes from his own ministry. That's not what this is. I draw on a lot of stuff that I've seen people doing in other places that seem to be working. Uh, I, I would say, based on all this stuff, all the reading and, and just observation, that the main thing they need is a firm identity in Christ. Uh, and that's where the name comes from. I will give them an everlasting name. Uh, this is a passage from Isaiah. And in that book, the prophet, at that point of the, of the book, he's speaking towards the people who have come back from exile. They're in Palestine again. And uh, some people had joined themselves to the body of Israel. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they're concerned about ethnic purity, which, you know, we should understand why, why that was a legitimate concern. But these people like eunuchs and foreigners who would unite themselves to Israel are now saying, well, maybe, maybe this is really not our home. Maybe we are really not part of Israel. And uh, here's a, pro- a promise from the Lord. I will give them an everlasting name, a, a name better than that of sons or daughters. Uh, what a beautiful promise showing the, the willingness of Yahweh to incorporate these people entirely and to give them a new name, which in, in the Semitic culture means a new identity, um, uh, an identity that is firmly built on Christ 
and the people of Christ, the church. We as Westerners tend to be fairly individualistic. Uh, that is something we need to get over in terms of ministering uh, to Muslims and seekers from Islam and converts from Islam. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to say, as, as a pastor, uh, that sounds quite applicable to ministry in general. When non-Christians are coming in, uh, they need a new identity with uh, because in the West we've lost our uh, that Christian veneer that was there. Uh, the people who are coming in are coming in from a, an explicitly different worldview and uh, they need to develop that, uh, that Christian identity. So I think that goes even beyond uh, Islam. I, I totally agree. You know, it used to be, I, mean, I, I actually was not raised in the church. I did not become a Christian until I was a, an adolescent. Um, so I remember growing up and not, not knowing anything about Christianity as a kid and, and all that stuff and not even knowing that Christmas was about baby Jesus. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of that. I came from, I'm a convert, if you will, from that. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, it used to be that there was, that you had all the furniture there, you know, in terms of the background knowledge of Christianity and scripture and, you know, basic Christian practices and rites and devotion and so on. You had all that stuff kind of there. And then if a person like got serious about their faith, then they could just open that up and they, they had it kind of in the background. And, and as you're saying, uh, Stephen, that's just not the case anymore, especially with younger people. They, they don't know any of this stuff. You know, you tell them that, you know, Christians believe in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're like, what, what does that mean? That, that, that sounds crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if a, uh, a new convert came to uh, one of our churches, uh, someone who's watching this video, they, uh, they experienced this uh, new convert from Islam coming to their church. What is the number one thing that we can do to, uh, to support them and to help them in their discipleship? The number one thing you can do is to make sure that they are included into that church and feel that it is their new family. Feel that it is their new family because as you know, literally it happens many times they are kicked out of their family. So I think for most Christians, like in, in the West, you know, the church is, it's a community that may be important for us, but if, if say, for example, you or I, all of a sudden, even as ministers had to switch church from one church to another, we would still have a community of friends and, and, you know, biological family around us. And it would be difficult, but it's something that the We've probably done. I, I have. I'm, I think you have. And uh, it's something that we can manage. But for a lot of these believers who came from Islam, they literally have no family anymore. So I love um, I love an, uh, an idea or practice that uh, I learned from a, a pastor in Florida who's reaching out to Muslims. He said, what I would do or what I do is I choose a person, just, just lay people, lay people from the church, right? Um, for each day of the week, and I make sure that they're going to call and talk to this person or meet with them if possible once every day so that this person has um, relations, like personal relations and conversation with believing Christians from all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities and age groups, all that stuff, um, but so that every single day they are being included in that community. Even, again, even if it's not physically meeting, at least just a, a call on the phone or 
or uh, WhatsApp, a couple of messages, something like that. Um, so I, I think that is a great thing to do. Um, and I remember an Iranian believer who went on to become an Anglican minister, actually. And she said, uh, you know, when I first got to the United States and I started going to, I think it was actually a Baptist church, um, you know, people had it, had all these wonderful things to say about the body of Christ and, you know, a beautiful theology of what the church is like. But when it came to actually living it out, I, I just didn't see it. And I thought, wow, that's, that's not, it's not the kind of thing that's nice to hear, but I think it, it often is uh, fairly accurate. I'm not sure what it's like in Spain, but I've uh, noticed among some Christians uh, here in Canada and, and from conversations with uh, some of my American friends as well, that there's a fair bit of prejudice against Muslims, even uh, a Muslim convert. There's some suspicion, um, especially after uh, all the terrorist attacks uh, when the, the Islamic state was, uh, uh, really active and doing things. Um, I it just, I really had a sense that there was a lot of distrust there. And I can imagine that uh, for some people, it would be a little bit of a, a stretch for them to, to reach out and to fully embrace this uh, um, former Muslim that they've just met. Does that, uh, have you seen that as being an issue? Yeah, I would say that there's two, uh, at least two very key er uh, errors or mistakes that Christians in the West um, commit. One of them is the one that you're talking about, just total suspicion. That's actually common. It's even more common in the Middle East because, you know, the Christians there were for centuries under the system of dimitude. They were inferior citizens and they knew it. And, and, you know, that was just part of the daily texture of life. That, that, that Christians are one step beneath the Muslims, same with the Jews. Um, so, uh, but in the West, that's also common. And the other error, error in the, in the West is the opposite, which is to get this person who has an amazing testimony of how they had to run away from fill in the blank country and how they had a dream. And then Christians are like, wow, this is so exciting. This is just like acts of the apostles, you know, and, and to put them up on a pedestal. These are both errors, Right. First of all, to treat them with too much suspicion or really with any suspicion, welcome them in, you know. Um, and, and the other one, of course, is to take someone who is has a very exciting testimony, but who in terms of the maturation of their faith is, is probably not very far along at all. And to, and to, you know, lift them up and to make them into a great hero, um, that can lead obvious to all sorts of pride and, and arrogant uh thoughts and stuff like that. So these are two key errors to, to avoid. That's a good point. Yeah. I appreciate you showing uh, both of those, those sides of it. Uh, how well do you think that the church is doing right now in terms of reaching Muslims? And so by reaching Muslims, I mean both uh, um, sharing their faith, but also discipleship of Muslim converts. Yeah, so I think, you know, 20 years ago, a book like this, and it's not a long book, you know, it's 100 pages long, and it's not clinical, it's not technical, it's a very down-to-earth book. I try to write it like that, at least. Um, 20 years ago, a book like this would have been incomprehensible because, you know, 20, especially 30 years ago, in terms of the, the church's mission to Islam, we were still asking the question that they've been asking since the opening of Protestant missions in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. 
which was how do we get Muslims to listen to the gospel? Well, you know, praise be to God, we don't have that problem anymore. I mean, it's still an issue, but uh, it's not the main issue because we have all sorts of, of avenues where Muslims are listening to the gospel. They're going to respond in many different manners. That's perfectly normal. Uh, but some of them are going to say, yeah, you know, I, I like this. I want this. I believe in this. Uh, so so I, the fact that we have this problem now is like, okay, we have these believers. We have these seekers. Now what do we do? I think it's a great problem. You know, there are bad problems to have in church and there are good problems to have. This is a good problem. So I think it's an exciting time. Uh, and, and that's actually why I wrote the book, because I have seen, you know, traveling around the United States and different also Europe, Africa, I've been all over the place. Uh, I have just noticed that now when I talk to pastors, they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah we have a, a Muslim background family coming to our whatever Wednesday meeting. Or, yeah, we helped to settle a family that, you know, came in from Afghanistan. So we know these people. But, and they, they asked us um, if they could be baptized, but I didn't know what to say. You know, just stuff like that. So I thought, what a wonderful problem. Let's get a practical resource for pastors and church leaders and most of this stuff is not being done by pastors. Most of it's being done by lay leaders in the church. Um, uh, let's get them a practical, easy to understand resource that is going to gather together, uh, you know, just 15 years of, of observation and research and give them some practical ideas. And if they look at one chapter and say, okay, this thing about, you know, teaching them different types of prayers or this thing about the liturgical calendar, I don't want to use that. Fine. Don't use it. But these are recommended ideas that have worked well in, in a lot of other places in, in the world. Mm -hmm. But that having been said, there's still room for growth. There's always room for growth. Sure, sure. Well, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about this book uh, as a pastor. I mean, I, I'm interested on the, the scholarly side, and I uh, really enjoyed uh, your, your previous uh, book on, on the worldviews and, and, uh, and that uh, sort of discussion. But as a pastor... Uh, I want to have uh, tools that are practical that can be used uh, on the ground. And, and this is great. And it's, again, uh, for some people, the, the goal is simply to get uh, a Muslim to convert to Christ. But that's the job is just starting to uh, start at that point. There's a lot of work just as uh, with any conversion. I mean, we, the church in general has made the mistake thinking, oh, if we can get them uh, converted and baptized, then we're, we're good. Uh, then we just move on to the next. But there's so much work that needs to be done. I was mentioning about this person I know who is a uh, Muslim background uh, Christian. And uh, it sort of shook me at first that um, there was little things like um, uh, we were walking along and a dog came running at us and she started freaking out. Uh, because uh, in, in her culture that she identified with, with her religion, that dogs were very unclean. And I was like, well, so what? You're a Christian now. So, you know, that shouldn't be a part of your thought process. But no, that's, there was all kinds of, th and as I got to know her, there was all kinds of things from growing up as a Muslim that continued to influence her. Like that stuff does not just disappear once uh, someone becomes a Christian. So we need these uh, reminders, but both the, uh, uh, the practical tips, but also the, the reminder that there is a need for ongoing pastoral care for these new believers. Yeah. And um, that's, there's one chapter in here about 
canceling the previous covenant because Islam operates in the same way that Christianity does in terms of it being a covenant, uh, uh, an explicit agreement with obligations on both sides between God and humanity. Now, the content and the manner of the covenant are, are very different. But, um, you know, you have an example here that you've given of, of a person who is still operating according to a cultural thing that for us doesn't make any sense. There is a hadith where Muhammad says, you know, an angel will not enter a home that has statues or dogs. So that's exactly what she's thinking, what she's thinking about. She probably doesn't even know the hadith, but it, it's, it's seeped into the culture. It's, it's right there in the background all the time. I remember hearing a story from a new believer who had just been baptized uh, in, uh, in Yemen. And this was a long time ago, so there's no security issue with this right now. And uh, he had just gotten baptized and he was very happy because that was a very difficult thing to do back then, as it is now in Yemen. And uh, he was going to go to the bathroom and he was stepping into the bathroom and he and he stops and he turns around to the, the visiting minister who had baptized him. He says, well, now that I'm a Christian, what do I say when I walk into the bathroom? Because in Islam, there is there is a practice of how you step into the bathroom. And I think you have to say, like invoke God because you're going into an impure place or something like that. And it's just like, okay, well, what was the Christian thing now? You know? And so these are just all these gaps, right. Uh, in our understanding, which is fine. But, you know, one thing I'm trying to do with this book is make people aware of some of those gaps, like, uh, like the Holy, like the liturgical calendar, the, the church calendar, um, and, and some of the other uh, issues that I, that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's great stuff. Now, is there one thing uh, from your book that you would just hope that all readers would would get? Is there one uh, principle that you're you're trying to get across? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think the main thing is to do everything you can to make sure that they have a family. Now, sometimes, like with international students, that ends up being an actual Christian family that brings them into their home and, you know, eats with them and or they eat with them, uh, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but always be thinking, how can we include this person in the life of our local community? We do things, you know, that maybe we don't even think of as having any kind of spiritual or religious content. And that's okay. You know, I mean, think of all the stuff that Jesus and his disciples did that had no religious content at all. You know, just walking miles and miles from one place to another. You know, we have the selections in the Gospels, uh, some of the selections of of the miracles and the teachings. But probably most of the time it was not particularly, you know, transcendentally oriented or anything like that. Um, Even just going to the supermarket together, you know, you need to probably help them with some practical things getting a driver's license, connecting the, you know, the utilities, depending on how long they've been in your country. Um, so just spending time with them, even if that's just having a meal together. Um, again, even if it's just going to run errands together, we don't necessarily tend to think of that as being valuable, but it can be uh, really valuable and it can show someone that you, that you really care about them. So just make sure that when they think, what is my home? Do I have a home anymore? Do I have a family anymore? that in some way, shape, or form, they will be able to say, yes, I do. I have a home. I have a family. Mm-hmm. That's great. And again, that's so applicable to ministry, even beyond Muslim background believers. Uh, that kind of uh, discipleship and welcoming in of people into the family of God. And not just ticking a box saying, yes, I 
uh, I intellectually believe that, that the church is a family of God, uh, but actually living it out. That's, that's really good stuff. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, and, and go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that this, a lot of this stuff as you're, as you're rightly recognizing has a real relevance to postmodern ministry or ministry in a postmodern uh, context. I'm thinking of, you know, back when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Texas at San Antonio studying philosophy uh, and how so many of our new members at the, at the Christian fellowship at the university, they would belong before they would believe. The, the traditional model is, is the other way around, right? Once we get you to believe in what we believe in, then you can belong to the church. But we're seeing that, that this is totally changing around. And uh, and it's not that one is right and the other one's wrong, but just the dynamic of the culture and how things are 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 moving in terms of how people are thinking about questions of of religion and who I am and identity and belonging, which is a great word to explore. Belonging, do I belong here or not? Am I comfortable here? Do I feel comfortable here? Do, do I want to be here? You know, th- these are these are real relevant and they're changing rapidly, not only with ministry to converts from Islam, but uh, you know, with youth, with uh, people. Uh, who were, um, you know, who I would say anyone who's Gen X or later on is going to be really, uh, really exposed to these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. We were talking before we started recording about some of the work I'm doing in disability ministry. And again, it's the same, uh, same principle there, that what people with disabilities are looking for is that, that uh, experience of belonging and being actively welcomed into the church, not just having a, uh, a wheelchair ramp or an elevator saying, okay, you know, you're, we're giving our assent uh, that you're allowed to be in the building with us, but actually uh, actively including and doing all the stuff that you're talking about, you know, maybe taking them to an appointment or, or whatever it might be. And uh, so, yeah, these principles are, are uh, applicable in a wide area because the the common denominator is we're talking about human beings, whether they're Muslims or uh, postmoderns or whatever it might be. Uh, they're they're all human beings and uh, created in a certain way by God, and and there are certain things that we're all longing for. So that, and it really makes sense. Hmm. Well, thank you, Dwayne, so much for uh, this conversation we've had, and I just want to. Uh, encourage people to to pick up the book and they can get that at Amazon, right? And I'm going to link to your Amazon uh, authors page as well as your Twitter uh, account and uh, your website and uh, encourage people to, to pick it up. Uh, I think it's, like you said, it is, you don't have to have a, a huge background in Islam. You don't have to be a scholar to read this book. It's, uh, it's, based on solid scholarship, but it's so uh, applicable and uh, readable for anyone. And I think that pastors and lay people will get so much out of this. And even if you don't have a um, a Muslim background believer in your church right now, I say that, yeah, you need to know this stuff beforehand. You don't want to be scrambling when it happens. So this is the time to do it. Well, thank you so much again uh, for all of this and uh, God bless you and your family and your ministry and all the things that you're doing. Okay. Thanks, Pastor Stephen. And, and uh, send our greetings from the Anglican Cathedral of the Redeemer uh, to your, uh, to is it Queen Street Baptist Church? Is that your you got congregation? It. Yes, very good. 
Okay. Well, excellent. Send them our affectionate greetings and tell them that we hope that you guys get snow before we do again, because <laughs> we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> we'll do that. All right. You take care. Okay.